And that's why we're here this morning, to celebrate Christ. I'm going to ask uh, my buddy Will to come up and help me this morning. This is Will Curl. He's Michael and Rinda Curl's son. Michael's our high school minister here at Moberly. And me and Will are buddies. And so every week we've been unwrapping the miracles of Christmas. So there's something in this box this morning, Will. And I don't know what it is, but it has to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. So I need you to help me by unwrapping it. Can you do that? Are you good at this? Yeah. You have some experience and stuff with this? Okay. Yeah. Just slide that down. Awesome. Now it gets fun. Okay. Just, you got to just like rip into that. There you go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you have presents at home right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. You going to open them next week? Mm-hmm. You going to be this careful? Mm-hmm. No, probably not. There you go. All right. Let's see what's in there. Here we go. What is it? Oh, it's a magnifying glass. All right. I think that's all there is, man. I know. Big deal, right? Hey, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Y'all give it up for Will. I love kids opening presents at Christmas, you know. That's awesome. He thought there might be something better in there than the magnifying glass. Sorry, buddy. Um, What does that have to do with what we're going to talk about? a magnifying glass. In the first hour, it was actually a microscope. So I'm going to hang on and we're going to talk about this in just a second. What we're going to talk about this morning is the incarnation, God becoming a man. Now, I don't know if that's a familiar term for you or not, but if it's not, we're going to be talking about it. By the time you leave in a few minutes, it will be a familiar term with you. So this morning, why don't you take your Bible and let's jump right into the scripture and see what God has to say about the incarnation. Chapter 1 of Gospel of John, if you want to find that. And if you want to stand with me, uh, because this is the Word of God, and we reverence the Word of God here at Marbley, you can read silently. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and verses 14, and I'll read aloud this morning. And this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. The deity of God is unquestioned. God is deity. But when God became a man, he retained his full deity while acquiring full humanity. That's a mystery. It's a mystery that I can't fully explain to you and no one else can. We affirm that by faith because the word says that it's true, thus it's a miracle. So it's the third miracle of Christmas that we're going to be talking about this morning, the incarnation where God became man. Now, we sang this morning some songs already, some Christmas hymns, and I don't know about for you, but I remember as a child going to church and singing Christmas hymns, and I think that may have been the first time in my life that I actually was introduced to the idea of the incarnation because most of the Christmas hymns have something to do with that. Um, Think about just what we sang this morning, O come all ye faithful. There's a line, O come all ye faithful. We sang it. This says, word of the Father now in flesh appearing, God becoming man. Hark the herald angels sing says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with man, pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus is our Emmanuel, 
God with us. That's what the word, the name Emmanuel means. And then angels in the realms of glory. God with man is now residing. Yonder shines the infant light. The word of God assumes and affirms the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. That's an enormous declaration of faith, particularly for the first century Jewish mind who were taught all their lives that the Lord our God is one God, not three, not three in one, but one. And so for the Jewish mind in the New Testament to, to say that Jesus Christ, whom they had known as a boy in Nazareth, is now God, that he's always been God, that's a huge affirmation of faith. But no larger leap of faith than someone in our current culture has to make whose mindset is postmodern and often pluralistic, meaning that they believe that there's lots of different ways to get to God, lots of different paths up the mountain to God. That's the way that the culture believes now, but, but not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, Jesus alone was God. There's not a bunch of gods. There's one God, and he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this morning, quickly, I want us to see what the incarnation actually means to us personally. What does the incarnation mean in your life personally? Well, first of all, God became a man so that we could know him. You actually can know God because God became a man. John says here that we observed his glory. That word for observe really means to concentrate. So this magnifying glass, way to go worship team. I was kind of wondering what y'all would come up with this week. A microscope, a magnifying glass, excellent object lesson to help us focus in, to concentrate in. And that's what John's saying. We observed, we focused in, we concentrated on the glory of the son who was the father in the flesh. We focused in on him. The root word here is the same word we get our English word theater from. When you go to the theater, you typically give all your attention to whatever's happening on the screen of the stage. You know, you don't go to the theater and start a long conversation with somebody next to you. I hope that's never happened to you, right? Sometimes that happens in a theater. But generally, if you're gonna pay 12 or $15 for a ticket, you go in and you're focused. You put your phone up, you turn it off, you silence it, whatever, and you give all your attention to what's happening on the stage or the screen. And what John's saying is, we gave our full attention to Jesus, to his glory, to know him. Because for the first time, we could see God with our eyes. We could reach out and touch him. We could experience him. He was in our presence. So what it means is that we have this opportunity ourselves to get to know God, to give our full attention to him. And Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for we're one. We're, just, we're the same God. John spent three and a half years of his life with Jesus physically. And as a result of his time with Jesus, he was convinced personally that Jesus loved him. Six different times in the Gospel of John, John writes and describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If your knowledge of God does not include your knowledge of his love for you personally, then your knowledge of God is incomplete. John was convinced after spending time with Jesus, who was God in the flesh, that the God of, the, of, God of heavens loved him. The God of the universe actually had love for him. So what's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God? Oftentimes when we talk about knowing Jesus, we'll say, well, does that person know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? And, and that's often how we describe their experience of salvation or being a Christian. Do you know the Lord? Well, there's a difference between trusting Christ as your Savior and then having a personal relationship with him that causes you to have a deep and abiding knowledge of who he is in your life. 
You start, certainly, by knowing certain things about him, by knowing that he's the savior of the world, knowing that he was sent here by God, that he died for our sins on the cross, that he rose again three days later. You have to know those things before you're willing to put your trust in him. But that's the starting place. Once you know who he is and you put your trust in him, then you begin to know him through a personal relationship that makes a difference. It's a distinction between knowing about him and actually knowing him from personal experience. Most of us probably have a basic knowledge of Jesus but, and God, but, but do you have a personal experiential knowledge that's based on the word of God? It's not just mysticism where you go out and say anything as your experience with God, excuse me, but you're basing on the word of God, the truth of God's scripture. And then you experience that personally in your life and the truth of scripture comes true in your life. Trusting God can be a difficult thing. And if you're struggling this morning with trusting God personally for some area of your life, Maybe it's because you don't really know God personally. I'm not saying you're not a believer in Jesus. I'm just saying maybe you don't have a close personal relationship with him. You've relied mainly on preachers and pastors and maybe other professionals who teach you about God, but you don't personally have experience with picking up his word every day and studying it to know him, observing him, as John says, so that you can know him and then watching him live out his character in your life through the different things that you go through. We need to have a personal understanding of God, and God wants that for us. God's been seeking to reveal himself to human beings ever since they were created. All through the Old Testament, there's stories of God dealing with Israel. And we think about Israel, and we think, why in the world did God choose a people and call them his beloved people, call them his chosen people? Didn't God love everybody? Did he only love Israel? No, he didn't only love Israel. But what God did is he chose the most insignificant, powerless group of people. They had no political power. They had no army. They had no wealth of their own. And he chose them and he said, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And I'm going to set my love upon you. And you're going to follow me. We're going to be in a covenant relationship. And because you're going to interact with me, the world is going to see what it looks like to have me as their God. And so through the people of Israel, this weak group of people... God is showing the world what it's like for him to be their God. So he's revealing himself to all the cultures around Israel by working through Israel's life. So that's what happened in the Old Testament. And you know, the Old Testament, the Jewish people didn't really get it right. They broke the covenant with God and they went astray and he sent prophets to them. And so if you read in the book of Hebrews, this is what it says about God's revelation. It says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What the incarnation means to us is that God's revelation is complete. That's what John's saying. We observe, we can know now the complete revelation of God. We don't have to wonder what God's like. We've seen it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the life of Jesus Christ. And because we believe that's a divine revelation, we know everything we need to know for this life about who God is because he became a man in the man Jesus Christ. So what happens when you don't know God? You tend to react to him wrongly when you don't know him. Think about the Israelites for a minute. They were constantly going to the temple. They were even sacrificing to some degree, they were showing up on the right day at the right time and they were going through the motions. And God was never satisfied with that because that was never his intention. 
The God of the universe didn't sit, sit up in the heavens and look on human beings and say, I want you, all I want for you is that you come once a year to my temple and offer a sacrifice. And I don't really care if your heart's in it or not. Just show up. <laughs> Why would anybody think that's what God cared about? But that's what they thought because that's who they thought God was. When you don't know God personally, you can't react to him correctly. Every year, people show up at churches on Christmas and Easter. And maybe that's you today. And if it's you, I'm glad you're here. So don't hear me saying that I'm not glad you came today because I'm very glad that you came. But why do people show up only two days out of the year and think somehow that that's what God expects of them, that they just come to church twice a year because they don't know God. They don't know who God is, what he's like, because if they did, they would know that that's not what he's about. He's not about external compliance. He's about internal change. He's about heart God's never satisfied with us just going through the motions. He's always been about what's going on inside of our heart. Think about it this way. If somebody just showed up at your birthday every year, your birthday party, and they were unwilling to talk to you the rest of the year, you'd text them, you'd call them, they'd never return your calls, but they show up at your birthday every year, right? Would you want them at your birthday party? Would you be like, why do you do this? Why do you just come to my birthday every year and you never talk to me the rest of the year? But that's what people do who don't know who God is. They think that he's somehow pleased with the external obedience of showing up. And God's about so much more than just showing up. He's about our hearts. God became a man so we could know him personally, so we could have a personal relationship with him. So do you? Would you describe yourself in that way? If I sat somebody down in front of you today and I said, hey, would you just describe God to them? Could you do it? Could you do it from your personal experience with him or would you have to go back and think, okay, well, I know this story, I know this story. Is it personal for you? Do you have a personal knowledge of who God is? This is what Jesus said. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying eternal life is about knowing God. That's the reason that Jesus came, is so that we could know him without question and have that personal experience with him. John says here in verse 4 that life was in him, and that life was the light of men. Jesus' life illuminates for us what God wants from us, and that is a close personal relationship. He wants us to know him. So do you know what God's number one goal for your life is? It's the same for all of us. Do you know what it is? God wants you, it's just this simple, he wants you to love him most in your life. He wants you to love him more than anyone or anything else in your life. He wants to be your first love. Well, how can you love a God that you don't know? You won't. John said in 1 John 4, verse 19, he said, we love because he first loved us. Everything about the way that we love God is reciprocal. God starts it by loving us. And to the extent that we know his love, that's usually the extent that we love him back. So if you think that God is really unconcerned with you, like you're just one of a bunch of people at church, you're just one of a bunch of people in life, and he's not really involved in the details of your life, and he really doesn't care that much about you personally, that tends to be the way you react to God. But if on the other hand, you open God's word and you understand that everything that God did dealing with people in the Old Testament is a picture of what he wants to do in your life, if you understand that he's that personal, that he knows you that intimately, then it draws you into the desire to love him back. I met recently with a friend who's not a believer and we were talking about he's wanting to change his life, but he doesn't really get Jesus yet. And so we were talking about that and he said to me, well, I'm doing a lot of bad stuff and I know it's wrong but I don't know why I should stop doing it. I mean, just knowing that it's wrong is not enough. So where does the motivation come from to stop doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing? You ever feel like that in your life? I thought, well, that's a great question. 
I said, here's where, the, here's where the motivation comes from. The motivation comes from your desire because you love God. Because you don't want to hurt God. Because you realize your sin offends God. It's not just some general thing when you sin that it offends God somewhere. No, it personally offends God. And when you know God, you don't want to offend God. You love God. And so it gives you great motivation to say no to a lot of things in your life that you should say no to because you know it doesn't please the Lord. That comes out of a personal relationship. That comes out of being in love with God. So first of all, God became a man so we could know him. Secondly, this morning, God became a man so we could be close to him. There's a word that he uses here. It's the word take up residence. He took up residence with us. The word tabernacles in some of your translations that God tabernacled among us. In other words, he came to be close. He came to live with us. Who are the people in your life that you're closest to? They're probably the people that you live with. People that know what you're scared of, people that know what makes you laugh, people know how to get on your nerves, how to push all your buttons, people who know what time you like to go to bed, what time you like to get up, what you like to eat for breakfast, what you like, what meals you don't like. I mean, all those details about your life, probably most of the people that live in your house know that about you. So what, what the Lord is communicating here is that he wants to take up residence. He wants to live with us. That's very personal. It's very intimate. And the word for tabernacle really is the word tent. So think about this. I, I don't think I've ever had a good night in a tent. I don't think I've ever had a good experience in a tent in my life. Some of you love to go out and pitch your tent on the side of a mountain somewhere. God bless you, okay? I don't like that. That's not my thing. But if I have, and I have a few times in my life spent the night in a tent, most of us don't spend the night in a tent with people that we're estranged from. Now, I realize if you're in the military, you might be in a tent with people that you don't necessarily get along with. But when we choose to spend the night in a tent, most of us choose to do that with somebody that we're close to. Because a tent really intimates intimacy. It suggests intimacy. So what God is seeking to communicate to us here is what John's saying is that God tabernacled. He pitched his tent with us to be close to us. There's a a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament, and it's called the Tent of Meeting. I love Exodus chapter 33. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read this chapter this week. Four verses I want to read to you because it's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about here. This is what uh, the story of Moses and the Tent of Meeting in Exodus 33, verse 7. It says, Now Moses took a tent and set it up outside the camp, far away from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the Tent of Meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Is that beautiful? Moses sets up this tent. Everybody can see it. It's way away from the camp. People of Israel are migrating from Egypt to Israel. And so they're out in the wilderness. And he sets up this tent. And that's the place that Moses goes. And he has a one-on-one, face-to-face, intimate conversation inside this tent called the tent of meeting. And whenever he's there, this pillar of cloud comes down. God's not a cloud. But the pillar of cloud was a physical representation that God was in the house. So it was a clear manifestation to everyone who saw it. God's in the tent. And Moses and God are having a conversation face-to-face as one friend does to another. That's the picture of what John's trying to communicate to us, that Jesus came down and took up residence among us. He built a tent with us. He lives with us. He wants to be close to us, face-to-face conversation. You know, I got to go to Israel several years ago, and I never really understood this until I went. But the people that live there now, the Jewish people that live in Jerusalem, 
they, uh, they often want to, you've probably heard of this, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall of the temple. They go to the Western Wall and they write little prayers on papers and they stuff them in the cracks of the bricks that are on that wall, the huge stones. And the reason that they do that, I never understood this before, is that they're not allowed to go on the Temple Mount if they're Jewish because there's a mosque on the Temple Mount now and that's a desecration and abomination. So they're not allowed to go up there. But that used to be where the Holy of Holies was in the temple, the inner part of the temple where the presence of the Lord was manifest. So if you came into Jerusalem, you couldn't miss the Temple Mount. It's up high. And on that Temple Mount would be the temple. And there in the Holy of Holies Holies was the presence of God manifest. So you could say, that's where God is. He's right there. I know where he is. And so you could go to the temple, you could offer your sacrifice, you could be close to God, but you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies because that was only the priest who would go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, sprinkled in blood to make atonement for the sins of the people. So there is no temple there now, there's no Holy of Holies there. So the people who are Jewish, they go to the Western Wall, which is the back wall of the Holy of Holies. And they go to that wall because it's the closest physically that they think they can get to God. They're seeking to be close to God. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, you've been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been sprinkled by the blood of the lamb and it allows you to go into the throne of God and have fellowship with him. This is what, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, let us approach the throne with grace, of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at a proper time. Are you close to God this morning? Because God became a man so you could be close to him. I didn't say, did you feel close to God? Because closest to God is not really a feeling. If you are close to God, you feel great. But it's not about a feeling. It's a state of being. Is there anything that keeps you from being close to God? Because you may say, well, you know, I used to be close to God. I want to be close to God. Sounds like a great idea. I like the idea of that, being close to God. I just ask a simple question. Are you this morning? Are you close to God? God did all this so that you could be close to him. He came close to you. Are you close to him? Man, what is it that keeps us away from God? It's the same thing for every one of us. Sin. Sin is what separates us. Sin is what keeps us at arm's length from God. Even if you already know Jesus as your savior, so many times we're content to stay away from the tent of meeting. We're content to have distance in our relationship with God. And, and here's what happens. The, the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 talks about besetting sins. Sins that trip us up, that ensnare us, that we repeat, that become lifestyle sins in our lives. Things that we do over and over again, things that you know you're going to leave here and go do in the future. You don't have any intention of stopping doing those things. We live in a culture that is full of moral filth. We do. We have to live in that culture. That's the world we live in. You can get on your phone and in one second, you can be looking at something that's an abomination to the Lord. Most of you know what I'm talking about. You say, why are we talking about pornography on Christmas? I didn't come to church to hear a sermon about pornography. It's not a sermon about pornography. Pornography is the thing that keeps you from going into the inner sanctuary and being close to God because you know in your heart, you can't do those two things at the same time. Sin pushes you away. It causes you to back up. It causes you to keep God at arm's length. And we have an epidemic, not just in our church and our culture, of people who are immoral and don't care, who are choosing immorality over closeness with God. And that's the problem with it because Christmas is all about God becoming a man so he could be close to you. But you can't be close to him if you're away from him, if you're choosing something that he doesn't want for you over him. 
Because you're saying that's more important. That's more valuable. And it keeps you at arm's length. And I think that's what Satan wants. He just wants us to know God personally, have a relationship with him, but be like way back here, distant, alienated. Because when you live your life like that, you're not effective for him. You're not sharing your faith with anybody. You don't care if you share your faith with anybody. Your heart's not lined up with God's heart. So you're just okay. I think that's an epidemic in the church today. I think we're content to just be at distance with God. So we do exactly what the Israelites do. We show up at church. We show up. Our hearts may not be in it. Man, Nate's up here leading us in worship, and you may be thinking about the cowboys today or whatever you're going to get for Christmas or something else, but you're not thinking about the God of the universe that you get to sing to this morning. You're not close enough to do that. You're content with distance, and that's not what God wants for any of us. So look at what it says in Hebrews 3.13. Encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Man, sin is deceitful. It hardens our hearts. It causes us to not care if there's distance. And maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Christmas is all about God becoming a man so that he could be close, so that you could be close to him. Are you close? Why don't you get close this morning? All you have to do is reject your sin abandon it, repent of it, turn away from it and come to him and he'll receive you and he'll forgive you and he'll give you the intimacy that was really what life is all about. He'll restore that in your life. A.W. Tozer said this many years ago, many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right with God but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right with God. Think about that for a minute, that's powerful. We want to feel right with God, that feels great. Man, I went to a Christian concert and the lights and the smoke and everybody was worshiping God. It felt really good, but I walked out as empty as I came in because I'm not close to God. It's the thrill of feeling right with God, right? No, it's about being right with God. What does that take? That takes repentance. That takes choosing God over whatever it is you're tempted by in your life. So God came close. God became a man so we could know him personally, so we could be close to him. And last this morning, I want you to see that God became a man so that we could follow him. Look at what it says here. Glory as of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Since Jesus was full of grace, everything he did in the gospels is a demonstration of grace and truth. When I was on sabbatical recently, and let me just stop and say thank you as a church for the provision of our pastors and ministers who get to go every seven years on a sabbatical leave. A lot of my friends in ministry never get this opportunity, but it is a very, a very huge blessing in the life of those of us who get to take these. And one of the things I did was I met with some ministry leaders and I was meeting with this guy who's a college minister on a secular university and uh, got to know him, was you know, interacting with him a little bit. And he told me this story about, I was asking him, you know, what is it like? He's in a very hard environment, you know, tough culture where he is, not a lot of Christian influence. And I said, well, you know, how's it going? What's it like? He said, let me tell you one story. He said, this is, this is what I'm, I'm finding to be true here where I am and, and how God's using me. He said, I go to this, I frequent this sandwich shop here in town because I'm, for one thing, I'm, um, I'm faith-based. So I raise my own support. I don't have a lot of other resources. So I don't have a lot of money to go out and eat other places. So I go to this sandwich shop because I can get this really good deal. He's telling me about this $3 deal he gets, whatever. And they don't care and they let him have it every day or whatever. So he goes to this sandwich place almost every day. And so he's gotten to know the people that work there really well because they see him every day when he comes in. And he said, there's a young man that worked there that he began to have a relationship with, a friendship with. And, um, you know, the guy would come by and he was bussing tables and doing different things. And so they would just talk. And uh, this guy works with college kids. This kid was about college age. And so 
this uh, young man came up to him one day and said, listen, um, you know, you seem like somebody I could trust. I would like to talk to you about a couple things. And the guy, the college minister was telling me, he said, you know, this young man, I, if I was guessing, and I don't know, I didn't know until he told me, but he said, if I was guessing, I would say he was probably same-sex attracted. He was probably homosexual or thought he was, self-identified as that. And he said, so the young man wanted to talk. So we met somewhere and we started a conversation. And this is what the young man said to him. He said, you know, um, I told you at the restaurant that I trust you. You, you seem like a really good person. And I, I need to talk to you about something. He said, I want to know what you think about same-sex attraction. And so my friend, the college minister said, um, I, I, it doesn't matter what I think about it. Let me tell you what God says about it. And so he said, I took the Bible out and I began to show him what scripture says. This young man had never, ever read these verses before. He'd never laid his eyes on the truth of God. No one had ever shared that with him before. And he said, so we sat there for like two hours and he said, he didn't trust Christ. He hasn't trusted Christ yet, but he trusted me. He trusted what I was going to tell him, how I was going to communicate with him. And I got to share with him. And to me, I looked at him, I said, that is the perfect demonstration of grace and truth. Now, if I had to take the room this morning and I had to ask you, where are you in the grace-truth continuum? I already know where most of you would land. I'm all about grace. <laughs> Give me grace over truth any day, right? I'm, in fact, I saw a meme recently on Facebook that said, our job is to love. Is that true? That's half true. That's partly true. Our job is not just to love because Jesus was full of grace and truth, both. Not either or. He was full of grace and truth. So our job is to be full of grace. Yes, love people. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15 that we're to speak the truth in love. That's part of what we're here to do. So yeah, we're supposed to be loving, absolutely, but not to the exclusion of the truth. And we're not supposed to be so much about the truth that we exclude grace. And let me just tell you, I even wrote it in my notes. We are horrible at this. <laughs> we are. As Christians today, we don't do that very well. We're almost always about grace. We don't want to tell people the truth because that sounds mean and harsh. But my friend, the college minister, he did a great job of demonstrating that you can do both. You can actually do both things. That's what Jesus did. If you follow Jesus, what you see in the Gospels is you don't see a man who is God who is just laying heavy truth on people everywhere he goes, just getting in their face, right? Getting up in their face. Do you see him in John 4 with a woman at the well going, yeah, you're right. You've been married five times. The guy you're living with right now, you're not even married to. You're living in sin, lady. Is that what he said? Did he say that? He did say, you've been had five husbands. The one you're with now is not even your husband. But he, he talked to her. He had a conversation with her. He demonstrated grace because he is full of both grace and truth. You see, the rich young ruler comes to him, and the rich young ruler is like, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? And he said, the Bible says he loved him. He valued him, in other words, and he told him the truth. And the young man went away sad. Did Jesus love him? Did Jesus demonstrate grace to him? Yeah. We have to do what John said at the very beginning of this message. We have to observe him. We have to concentrate on Jesus and see how he did those two things because he did them really well. If you're all about truth to the exclusion of grace, you're not accurately representing God to the people around you. If you're all about grace to the exclusion of the truth, you're not accurately representing God to the people around you. We have to do both, grace and truth. And the only way that we're gonna do that is if we do the second thing I talked about, and that's stay close, close to the heart of God. See, 
Grace is uh, the affirmation that people are supremely valuable. Look at this slide for a second. When with grace, we understand that people are supremely valuable, right? We understand the value of people. So we want to be careful how we do that. We don't want to communicate to people that they don't matter. But on the other hand, truth affirms the supreme value of God. God also has value in our lives. And if you love God, you want to speak up for him. You want to speak up for the truth, but it's how you do it. How many people do you know that have been damaged because someone either was all about grace in their life and never told them the truth, and so they went into their sin and thought, well, I can just keep doing this because I'm loved by God. And they are loved by God, but they're hurting and breaking the heart of God. Or people that have been hurt by other people who just slammed them with the truth and never, ever showed them any grace. And there are people who think that's fine. Both, both parts are fine, but both without the other is incomplete. And so God became a man to show us how to live. He became a man to give us an example to follow, an example of grace and truth. So how are you doing with that today? Is your life full of grace and truth? Man, I, I guarantee you it's a struggle and we can't look to very many people and say, well, I wanna follow him. You can look to Jesus and follow him. You follow me around long enough, you'll see that I fail in that way. If I follow you around long enough, I'll see that you fail in that way. I'm trying, but Jesus is the example, not any other man. We can look to him. We can zero in on him and say, how did he live his life? How did he demonstrate that? And that's what we wanna do. I don't know about you, but I have a desire to kind of right the wrongs of the past. I have a desire to show people that you can love them and still tell them the truth because it's been missing in our, in our culture for a long, long time. And Christians have kind of missed out on how to do that. So maybe you're like me. Maybe you say, I want to do a better job at that. I really want to be salt and light. I really want to do grace and truth in people's life. I want to demonstrate that so that people understand that God loves them, but he does have expectations of them. He has expectations of me and you. So when you think about grace for just a minute, and we're just about to close, think about this. We often define grace as, as getting what we don't deserve, a gift. You're gonna open a bunch of gifts in the next week somewhere at somebody's house, probably, or you're gonna buy a bunch of gifts for other people to open here in about a week or so. And so every time somebody opens one of those gifts, there's not like a payback slip in there that says, now I'm giving you the gift, but this is what it's gonna cost you over the next six months, okay? You're gonna to have to clean your room 10 times, you're gonna to have to wash my car, you're gonna to have to fix me breakfast, you know? It, it, it doesn't have some kind of payback slip in it. You give your kids gift, it's a gift. Hopefully there's no strings on it, you just give it to them, why? Because you love them. It's, it's grace, it's a picture of grace when someone gives you something you didn't deserve or necessarily go out and earn. Well, God became a man to show you that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And I mentioned this a second ago. There's no way any of us can ever have a personal relationship with God on our own. We can never undo the effect of our sin on our relationship with God. What we need is a savior. And God knew that. So he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And if you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can celebrate every Christmas that God came in the form of a man to save you. You can celebrate that every Christmas. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you've never put your trust in him, you can't celebrate that this Christmas. But you actually can. Because today, I'm going to give you the chance to actually put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest offer that anybody has ever made any human being. And that is, you trade in all your sin, he gives you eternal life. He makes you right before God. He forgives your sin. He removes it from you as far as the east is from the west and remembers it against you no more. There's no history file. There's no card catalog. It's deleted, gone. And you can stand before God right because Jesus Christ is righteous and he takes your place. His death on the cross 
gives you access to God. So I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your heads this morning, close your eyes, and ask you to pray for the people that are sitting around you this morning. Nate's going to come up here in just a minute and lead us in a song. And we're going to have a response time. Maybe this morning you already know Christ, but you'd have to say, I don't really have, I don't really have been exercising a personal relationship with him. Or I'm not close. I've been closer. I know what it is that's keeping me away. I need to do something about that this morning. I want to do a better job of demonstrating grace and truth to the people that are in my life, the people that God brings into my path. But, but you can't do any of that until you have a personal relationship with Christ. So this morning with nobody looking around but me, if that's you and you'd say, I want to have a relationship with God that lasts forever, you can. It's a free gift. It's what Christmas is all about. You can have all your sin forgiven. Just turn away from it. Just turn away and reject it and say, what I want most is Jesus Christ in my life. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to make you come down front or anything, but I want to know if I can lead you in prayer, a prayer of salvation. So nobody's looking around but me. Is that you this morning? Would you just raise your hand? That's me. I've never asked Christ to come into my life, but I want to do that this morning. Thank you. Somebody else? Anybody else? Here's your chance. It's the greatest offer anybody's ever made a human being. Trade all your sin and have eternal life in a relationship with God that lasts forever. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Prayer that is uh, the words are not magical. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you ask Christ to come into your life, you call upon him because you believe in him, you turn away from your sin, he'll save you. He promises to do that and his promises are good. He's never broken a promise. So this morning, you can pray something just like this. You have to mean it in your heart because he knows your heart and you do too. Just say, dear God in heaven, I'm a sinful person and you know that, but I'm sorry for my sin. I turn away from it. I don't want it. I believe in Jesus. I want Jesus to come into my life and make me right with you. Forgive me of all my sin. Would you do that this morning, Jesus? Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Help me live in a way that honors you now. Help me know you personally and intimately in the days ahead. I want to follow you. I pray in Christ's name.